Welcome to Global Minnesota Podcast, connecting, informing, and engaging Minnesotans with the world and exploring important international issues. For a complete list of programs and to join us, visit globalminnesota.org. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everybody who's out there watching our global conversation for this month. Our topic today, food security and foreign policy. We'll be joined by experts from around the planet, but there are people viewing from all over this earth, and we want to encourage your questions and your comments uh, as we go through today's program. My name is Mark Ritchie. I have the honor and privilege of serving as president of Global Minnesota. We're a 70-year-old World Affairs Council that's been advancing international understanding and engagement here in the Midwest and around the planet for um, uh, our community and for the community of other global-minded people around the world. Today's program is free for everyone because of the generosity of our members. I want to encourage you, if you're not yet a member, please go to our website, check out all of the activities, sign up, please join, be part of this community. We have partners that we do our global conversations programs with. Often in the past, they were in person, of course, the Minneapolis Central Library, Friends of the Hennepin County Library and the Landmark Center are three of the venues that we very much treasure. Uh, they've been wonderful partners for us and we look forward to the day when we're able to do in-person events again. Many of the program topics that we have on our global conversations are inspired by the, um, the Great Decisions Program of the US, the Foreign Policy Association. That's an association that helps um, develop conversations at the most grassroots level in people's homes and churches and libraries um, where they come together once a month or something and bring out topics of key foreign policy interests with experts and speakers and videos. Um, we often are partnering with a number of the institutions in our community, the Edina Senior Center, Friends of the Edina Library, the Washburn, many of the libraries in our communities, Plymouth. These are some of our sponsors, supporters, our partners for these kinds of conversations. Alex Bentley was this amazing, amazing um, program associate who came to us from Tufts, who helped make today's program possible. And thank you again, Alex, for all that you did to pull this together. Foreign policy is often about the debate on ends and means. And so when we're in this special moment of uh, what we sometimes call the twin pandemics of the COVID and the economic crisis that then gets rolled together with a climate crisis. There's a lot of debate about what are the things that are coming out of this moment and what are the disparities that are shown or that are spotlighted because of the situation. And none is more sort of in the headlines right at this moment than hunger, food insecurity and malnourishment. In Minnesota, a prosperous place by many means of recognition, is facing depression era levels of food insecurity right now. Maybe 700,000 people in a state of 5 million facing food insecurity now. And of course, globally, the economic decline and the sudden loss of employment and income, locusts, droughts, wildfires, you name it. So we are at the perfect moment to think about and talk about what is going on in the food farm policy. How does it interplay with the foreign policy of trade and tariffs and war making and peacemaking? 
And what do we need to be thinking about as we look forward with new awareness of pandemics and the links to public health, links to education? We're joined by a number of experts today, but we're also thrilled to have, um, for me, an old friend from her days at U.S. Department of Agriculture and the Senate Agriculture Committee. Um, Tina May migrated west to our fair state, and she's the Chief of Staff and the Vice President for Rural Services at Land of Lakes, one of our cooperatives here in really the capital city of cooperation for the nation and the planet. Tina, thank you so much for joining us today, and thank you for moderating this impressive panel. I'm turning the microphone over to you. All right. Thanks, Mark. And I think this panel uh, that Mark and his team pulled together today uh, really shows the outsized leadership that Global Minnesota has on these issues. Uh, with this panel of heavy hitters, I know we're going to have a number of questions uh, from the audience today. So I'll encourage you at the beginning uh, to please put those questions in the chat box at the bottom of the screen and we'll sort through them as the presenters are presenting this morning. Uh, so let's get to it. Uh, I want to introduce our first speaker today, uh, Caitlin Welsh. Uh, Caitlin is the director of the Global Food Security Program at uh, the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And uh, I know we couldn't all be together in person today, but CSIS, uh, as you all know, um, is just a tremendous leader in this space. The program that Caitlin runs at CSIS does a ton of exceptional work in this area. Uh, so Caitlin, over to you uh, to give the highlights for what you're working on. Great, thank you so much, Tina. Thanks for that introduction. I also want to say that um, on, a, on a personal note, it's really a pleasure to be joining a, an event that's, um, that's being hosted out of Minneapolis right now. Um, I was born and raised in Erie, Pennsylvania. I'm joining you from the Washington DC area where I live right now, but about half my family um, has relocated to Minneapolis. And I know that it's a, it's a world-class city with really fantastic people. And um, I would love to be joining you in person someday for, for an event like this. Um, so, uh, as the first speaker for today's event, I'd like to use my remarks to help frame our discussion. Um, I'm going to introduce a few themes that I'm, I'm sure that other panelists will build on. Um, and first thing I want to speak about broadly is I want to speak to the question about the relationship of national security, um, uh, U.S. national security, and, uh, and, and global food security. And um, when it comes to uh, the justification for a U.S. focus on food security in other countries, the tradi traditional argument is that global food security is an economic imperative for the United States, and it's also a national security imperative. And this framing has been consistent past, um, across the, the, past, the last two administrations at least, probably more than that. And I'll give some examples about uh, thinking on, on these two topics, and I'd also like to share how my thinking on these things has changed since I left the government to, um, to join CSIS. So when it comes to national security, um, again, the link between nat US national security and global food security has been understood and emphasized for a long time. In 2015, the intelligence community put out an analysis on global food security and the bottom line analysis of this, uh, the bottom line judgment of this, this entire analysis is that we judge that the overall risk of food insecurity in many countries of strategic importance to the United States 
will increase during the next 10 years. And simply the, the existence of this report, which is the product of all elements of the, the intelligence community, speaks to the importance of global food security to, to US national security. There are many ways that, the, uh, that, that um, food insecurity can affect, food insecurity abroad can affect US national security. Um, a lot of these might be familiar to, to your audience, but there are uh, global upheavals in places like Syria that can dominate US attention and consume our resources. Um, in the Syrian civil war, there is a, a, a food insecurity played an important role. There is um, increasing food insecurity and loss of agricultural livelihoods in the lead up to that civil war. You also have our, our own security affected when regime, cha regime, regime change happens among our strategic allies like in Egypt. Of course, there's a strong link between uh, the high price of bread and protests that led to regime change there in 2011. And as a, a quick note, I noticed this week that Reuters has reported that Egypt has raised its purchases by almost 40% year on year. Um, this is its pur purchase of, of wheat, 40% year on year in the first two months of this buying season. So Egypt, of course, understands the strong link between uh, access to, to bread and its own stability in country. Final link is, of course, migration, um, including migration from Central America to the United States. One among many of the contributors to surges in migration from Central America to the United States in recent years is, of course, food security and loss of agricultural livelihoods. And um, so the, the, these links are, are things that you'll probably hear a lot um, in the news or from people in the U.S. government talking about the links between U.S. national security and global food security. I think that one piece that, that did an excellent job of talking about uh, the relationship of global food security to global stability um, is a piece that came out of the New York Times Magazine this summer. Um, and it, it, it has me in my new position at CSIS thinking a lot more about the impact of not just food insecurity, but other phenomena on global stability generally. And I'm gonna um, just say a, a quick quote from that piece. It says, around the world, as people run short of food and abandoned farms, they gravitate towards cities, which quickly grow overcrowded. It's in these cities where waves of new people stretch infrastructure, resources, and services to their limits that migration researchers warn that the most severe strains on society will unfold. Food has to be imported, stretching reliance on an already struggling farms and increasing its cost. People will congregate in slums with little water or electricity where they are more vulnerable to flooding or other disasters. The slums fuel extremism and chaos. Again, that's um, just a portrayal of how instability um, can be unfolding. One of the major factors being food insecurity and loss of, loss of livelihoods and food systems. Turning from national security to economic prosperity, a note on global trade, it is and it will continue to be critical to global food security. Some developing countries are over-reliant on imports to meet their food needs, and so there's been an overwhelming emphasis by the U.S. government on helping these countries to increase their own production of food. Um, this makes sense in a lot of ways, but just a, a word of caution, and this is something I'm pulling from the intelligence community analysis on global food security. Um, this is, again, another top-line finding of that report which is that simply growing more food will not result in more food secure countries. That, that quote speaks to the importance of investing in many other aspects of food systems in order to improve food security among people 
And something that I'll get to at the end of my, uh, of my um, introduction is that food, food security is not just the lack of hunger, it's also access to healthy diets. So again, it's important to increase production of food in developing countries, but it's not the silver bullet. To the extent that US companies and their employees and their communities benefit from trade with developing countries, this is improving our economic security. And I'm preaching to the choir here, as I know that um, you know, Minneapolis and, and St. Paul, there are cities that are homes to, some, homes to some of the world's top agribusinesses. So I know that you understand firsthand the importance of agricultural trade to our own economic prosperity. And a final note, and this is something um, that I've been thinking about since leaving the White House and leaving the State Department, but um, again, the two main justifications for a focus on food security in our foreign policy are that food security is global food security is critical to our national security and our economic prosperity. And since leaving and joining CSIS, I have been thinking a lot about how our efforts abroad are important to our soft power important to our, our, our ability to, to wield influence around the world. When we help other countries to improve their food security, the, the food security of their citizens, we're building alliances with those countries. And when we're educating other country scientists at our universities, as we're doing in the Twin Cities, I know, we're forging lifelong ties. And the thing is when, so, so, so those things are known. When we address food insecurity at home though, we're also signaling to the world that we know how to tackle this challenge on a global scale. And when we don't do this at home, we're sending the opposite signal. And I noticed this, this uh, coming, um, starting this spring, um, when I would receive questions from journalists who are asking about food insecurity in our own country. And they were saying, can you please explain the, the levels of food insecurity we're seeing and the long lines at food banks? I never thought that this was possible in your country. And also in the wake of the racial reckoning that our country is experiencing um, after the murder of George Floyd, racial inequities in our food systems are also on display for the rest of the world to see. So it's not just important for us to be global leaders in our interactions with other countries, but also to show the world that we know how to address food insecurity and how to do that equitably in our own country. And I know that there are some excellent initiatives happening in the Twin Cities by Cargill Foundation, General Mills, Target, um, Lando Lakes, many others that uh, I hope that those things are making the news and, um, and just showing the rest of the world about the good, the good work that we can do here in the US. And again, um, one very final note is another shift in my thinking since leaving the government and joining CSIS is just that the definition of food insecurity has changed. I won't get into the definition, um, it's, a, it's a broad and complex definition, but in general, it's been my impression that the global food security simply assumes that if someone is not hungry, then they're food secure. And there's been uh, important data released recently um, showing just how difficult it is um, for people not just to access food, but to access healthy diets. Right now, there are several hundred million people around the world who are hungry, but over 3 billion people, and that's almost 40% of the global population who can't afford the cheapest healthy diets. That's so important, particularly in the, uh, in the context of this pandemic where we've seen the, the strong relationship between malnutrition, obesity, and morbidity and mortality from COVID. So um, final note is an emphasis on the importance of healthy diets. And with that, I will turn, uh, turn it over to the next speaker. Thank you.
Thanks, Caitlin. And I will mention Caitlin is being very humble when she mentions uh, her time in the government. As you think about your questions, remember that uh, Caitlin served uh, in the National uh, Security Council and the National Economic Council. Uh, so when she says time in the government, uh, it was at the highest levels coordinating policy uh, in the G7 and G20 for uh, a lot of these issues. Uh, uh, um, for um, uh, presidents and uh, cabinet level officials. So Caitlin, uh, thanks so much for your comments. Looking forward to the Q&A portion. Next up, uh, we have uh, Asma Latif. Uh, Asma, uh, we're very excited to have you today. Uh, Asma is the director of the Bread for the World Institute, which uh, is the policy arm uh, for Bread for the World, uh, which all, as you all know, is uh, the faith-based organization uh, urging national decision makers to end hunger, both domestically and abroad. Uh, at the Institute, Asma uh, leads research analysis education uh, on policy issues related to US and global hunger, malnutrition and poverty. Uh, one of the items Asma is going to discuss with us today is the report that's published annually by the Institute on hunger. Uh, Asma, I'll hand it over to you. Thank you. Thanks very much. Um, it's wonderful to be here and thank you so much to Global Minnesota for the invitation. Really appreciate this conversation. And, you know, just building off uh, Caitlin's terrific um, uh, setup for this conversation, I, I really want to focus on three points. Um, one is uh, really that we have made substantial progress against hunger. Um, and the U.S. has played a leadership role in, um, in that progress. The second point is the gains that we've made are fragile. And the third point is really the, that fragility is really, has, is really on display um, through in this COVID crisis. Um, Mark's remarks and Caitlin's really point to that. And we have an opportunity now to really rethink things. And that's where I'll, I'll speak a little bit about our uh, 2020 hunger report. So on the progress, um, we've, had, we've made over the last several decades, uh, substantial progress against hunger. In 1990, a billion people in the world were hungry. That was about one in four people. Um, the UN agencies that work on food security recently launched a report um, with the most recent data. This, of course, was pre-COVID. Um, and now around 690 million people um, suffer from hunger. That is far too many, obviously. But it, is a, it shows that progress is possible. Um, U.S. leadership has, has played an important role in that progress. The U.S. government um, and U.S. universities have contributed to agricultural research, to evidence-based solutions on nutrition um, that have, you know, been um, implemented through USAID and the U.S. Department of Agriculture working with partners and countries around the world. Um, it was really important um, 
initiatives like the the feed the future initiative that really came out of um, the global food price crisis in 2008 which really was a wake-up call to the world um, in a short period of time food prices spiked and you saw a sudden increase in um, in hunger and it came at a time when and and it was a global crisis so you saw leadership um, by the Bush administration and then the uh, new Obama administration to really um, reinvest and engage donors and other um, countries to reinvest in agriculture and to really start to incorporate um, nutrition into the way they were thinking about the res response to the global food price crisis. Um, and that, you know, and through that um, process of um, building, so developing Feed the Future and then engaging Congress on, the, on Feed the Future, there was, there's been strong bipartisan uh, support uh, on, in Congress for um, addressing global food security. Um, and we've seen that really hold together despite um, uh, changes in administration, changes in the makeup of Congress, uh, difficult budget cycles. You've seen um, a real commitment um, in a bipartisan way to both uh, authorize Feed the Future through the Global Food Security Act, as well as um, fund um, these critical programs. And I, I think um, the US public, uh, members of Bread for the World and other um, advocacy organizations have really played a role in um, shoring up and strengthening that support. I'll move quickly to my second point, which is um, oh, just one, one last piece on that, on that point that progress is possible. In 2015, the world agreed on the Sustainable Development Goals. And it was really exciting to see um, a, a goal to end hunger and all forms of malnutrition as the second goal of the Sustainable Development Goals. It came at a time when the world was really optimistic about the ability to rally together and to uh, really make progress rapidly. Um, since then, and this goes to my second point, we have actually seen um, an increase in hunger. And uh, the, the um, reports that the UN has put out since 2015 have pointed to some key factors in, um, the, in the rise in hunger. Um, it's risen by about 60 million in, um, since 2014. Um, climate change is a huge factor conflict and uh, economic disruption in some of the poorest countries. Um, Caitlin spoke um, to some of the uh, places, Syria, Egypt, um, and uh, uh, you know, in Central America that have um, really seen all of these factors come together. Um, it's really, climate change is changing things dramatically on the ground and I think rural communities in America really understand this very well. In, um, 
in sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia and Latin America, farmers who are, you know, smallholder farmers, and it's ironic that it's in those areas where in farming communities that hunger is, is the highest, they are experiencing hugely disrupted weather patterns and unpredictable weather patterns and are, are finding it more and more difficult to work the land. And in some cases that is leading um, people to move from rural to urban areas. So um, we, these gains that we're seeing are really quite fragile and we really need to, um, to build on them. And this COVID crisis has shown that our food systems are incredibly fragile as well. Um, the economic disruptions, the lockdowns, the um, social distancing have really further imperiled uh, food security in our country and around uh, the world. Um, we really need to rethink um, our food systems. Equity is a huge um, issue. The, the most vulnerable people are, uh, need to get the attention the first, otherwise we are going to see a huge backsliding on hunger. So I will, I will really just um, end by saying this is a global crisis. It's also a huge opportunity to rethink our food systems and put in place measures that both um, build resilience, do uh, in a sustainable way and improve the diets and the well-being of people around the world. So we are in a moment of crisis, but the crisis can, can be used to, to move us to a better place. Thank you. Asma, thanks for your comments. Much appreciated. I think that is the perfect segue to, to our next panelist, Dr. Paulberg. Uh, Dr. Paulberg, I, to me, uh, I'm um, humbled that I get to introduce him. Uh, I cited him numerous times in my own master's uh, work. Uh, but anecdotally, I'll mention, uh, I was working for the Senate Agriculture Committee uh, during midterm elections in 2010. And if you remember back that far, <laughs> when politics were a slightly bit different, uh, Senator Kennedy had passed away. We had midterm elections, which of course created um, a chain effect of uh, turnover in committee chairs. Uh, Senator Stabenow, Democrat from Michigan, uh, became the chair of the Senate Agriculture Committee who I was working for. This was about the same time that Dr. Parlberg's book came out uh, titled Food Politics. Uh, in that lead up to what was ultimately the 2014 Farm Bill, uh, Senator Stabenow, uh, had some required reading. One of those books was Dr. Paulberg. So if you haven't uh, written or read that book uh, that he wrote, please check it out. I'll also mention uh, the professor here from Wellesley and Harvard uh, also has a new book coming out in 2021, uh, which I just checked. You can pre-order at target.com. <laughs> uh, so Dr. Paulberg, I'll uh, turn it over to you. Okay, well, thank you very much, uh, Tina. Thanks for the plug uh, for the new book. Uh, the title will be Resetting the Table, Straight Talk About the Food We Grow and Eat. Uh, and it comes out on February 2nd. Um, but let me, uh, uh, let me start by remembering my own uh, ties to Minnesota. I spent four of the best years of my life at Carleton College in Northfield, Minnesota many years ago. 
and it's wonderful to be back uh, at least uh, virtually uh, to, to Minnesota. Uh, in my remarks, I'm gonna begin with what I think is the most important fact about uh, food security, and that is that uh, persistent hunger around the world is mostly driven by persistent uh, poverty. But, uh, and this reinforces uh, what uh, Asma was saying, progress has been made here. Uh, in the second half of the 20th century, the share of the world's citizens living in extreme poverty fell from 60% uh, down to just 10%, and the result was a dramatic improvement in food security. Back in 1970, 36% of the citizens of the developing world uh, were chronically undernourished. Um, by 2018, that had fallen from 60% down to just 11%. Now, these are remarkable achievements, but the subject of our meeting today is on foreign policy and global food security. And it's interesting to me how um, little uh, foreign policy had to do with these uh, achievements. Uh, the biggest breakthrough was in China, a country that saw a famine where 30 million people died in the early 1960s. Uh, now China is a spectacular economic success and it has a bigger problem with obesity than with, than with hunger. Uh, China's turnaround was not a result of a foreign policy change. It was reforms in land rights and in marketing policies undertaken in 1978, a domestic policy change. Or look at East Asia's economic miracle that reduced hunger there. That was the result once again of mostly domestic policy changes, investments in infrastructure, investments in human capital like human health uh, and education. In some cases, international technology transfers made uh, an important contribution, but these often came from private companies, not from governments, or they came from philanthropic uh, foundations like the Ford and Rockefeller foundations that launched the Green Revolution in, uh, in the 1960s and the 1970s. Notice also that the number one challenge to global food security today doesn't come from anyone's foreign policy. It comes from the COVID virus and from the domestic policy responses, the economic shutdowns to that virus. Now, it's often a good thing that foreign policy doesn't intrude too much on, on the global food security space. For example, I think it's a good thing that international food assistance primarily goes through neutral United Nations uh, World Food Program operations rather than deliveries uh, bilaterally. Uh, and it's a good thing that food trade rules are mostly made by an international organization, the World Trade Organization, one that um, keeps these trade rules apart as best it can from, from diplomatic disputes. But uh, having said this, we may now be noticing uh, a change. Both of the world's two superpowers have recently shown a strong preference for nationally directed rather than politically neutral or, or rules-based international behavior. And this includes in the area of uh, global food trade and food security. The America First policies of the Trump administration have um, been visible to all uh, for the past four years and with mostly disruptive consequences for international agricultural markets. But the U.S. isn't the only global superpower uh, that's been working outside of uh, global uh, governance uh, these days. Uh, China 
has recently been leveraging its spectacular economic success to seek increasing global influence by spending more, not just on military arms, but also investing massive uh, amounts in infrastructure projects in developing countries under its $1 trillion Belt and Road Initiative. The results are particularly visible in Africa. Africa, remember, is still primarily an agricultural continent, so these investments will have agricultural, circum ag agricultural consequences. On my last two uh, visits to Nigeria and Tanzania, uh, Chinese-funded projects were, were visible everywhere. And Chinese funding was building roads and railroads, and, and it was mostly Chinese motorcycles and Chinese trucks that were on those, uh, on those roads. Um, uh, now for, for China, these are state-led. These are foreign policy initiatives. It was President Xi Jinping himself who in 2015 went to Africa uh, to make China's first $60 billion pledge to uh, development cooperation initiatives in the region. Then, just three years later, he made a second $60 billion uh, pledge. Uh, by comparison, uh, what's the U.S. doing? U.S. government assistance to Africa through USAID is only about $7 billion a year, and our entire Feed the Future initiative is only about $1 billion a year. It's a, a rounding area, uh, a rounding error uh, from, from Ch China's uh, standpoint. Uh, China has also set up 23 agricultural technology demonstration centers in Africa to transfer Chinese technology uh, onto the continent and to consolidate economic ties. By contrast, the U.S. mostly relies on private corporate investments uh, to bring new agricultural technologies into Africa, uh, but companies um, find it difficult to work in Africa, so too often uh, they remain on the sidelines. Uh, when China's leaders spend money in Africa, they want diplomatic leverage. They want agricultural imports from China. They want raw materials from China. They want markets for Chinese exports, like those trucks and those motorcycles. They're thinking uh, of China first. I think it's ironic that when uh, the current administration in Washington tries to design an America first foreign policy, uh, it mostly stops spending money uh, in Africa. Uh, I think the Chinese have a better strategy. Uh, the US does still provide considerable support for, for global governance organizations to advance food security. We're the largest food aid donor through the World Food Program. China's not a significant or regular food aid donor. We contribute $290 million a year to the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization in Rome. Uh, China contributes only about 30 million. The US pays for about 24% of the International Agricultural Research System, the CGIAR. Uh, China pays for less than 1%. But I'm not sure how much diplomatic leverage the US is getting from uh, accepting this role. If I were an African leader or an African farmer or an African consumer, I would uh, welcome China's state-led investments in Africa's infrastructure. It's something the US government, not even the World Bank anymore, is prepared to do. It's something private companies aren't gonna do until, uh, private companies aren't gonna go in until the infrastructure's in place. But if I were a US foreign policy leader, uh, concerned with uh, China's rapidly increasing economic and diplomatic influence, especially in Africa, I would be worried and I would want to see much stronger
better funded U.S. government leadership uh, in reducing poverty, especially rural poverty in Africa. More bilateral infrastructure investments through the Millennium Challenge Corporation, not just USAID uh, technical assistance. I'd like to see more training programs that sponsor African students at the great agricultural schools of America's land-grant universities, including here in Minnesota. So uh, I'm out of time, but I'll stop there and I look forward to good questions. Excellent, thanks for your remarks. And as you were speaking, uh, Mark Ritchie, all I could think about was how Dr. Parlberg and Mark Ritchie should hook up and do a podcast. I feel like the two of them could go 12 episodes uh, just on this topic alone. So Global Minnesota team, uh, that, that's a, a task for you to take on in the future. Our next panelist uh, is Abigail Rockwell uh, from the State Department. Uh, before I introduce Abigail, I'd like to mention uh, and remind the audience to please uh, put your questions in the chat bot uh, below so we can tee those up for our panelists. Uh, Abigail is, has a big job. Abigail is the acting director of the State Department's off Office of Global Food Security where she coordinates all of the food security and nutrition concerns across uh, the State Department and other U.S. government agencies. Uh, prior to her work there, she served uh, the State Department and the U.S. government in a number of uh, locations across the world. Uh, so she is extremely well qualified for her current role and to talk to us today. So Abigail, virtually welcome to Minnesota. We're very pleased to have you on the panel and please take it away. Thank you. And thank you for that lovely introduction, Tina. I do hope that I will be able to join you all in person in Minnesota sometime in the not too distant future. Um, but thank you nonetheless to Global Minnesota for inviting me here to speak with you today via Zoom. I'm honored to be on this panel with such an impressive group and really excited to hear what everyone has to say on global food security and U.S. foreign policy, since I'm lucky enough to be working at the intersection of these issues within the U.S. government. During my time in this role, I've seen both how challenging these issues are and how important it is that the U.S. play a leading role in confronting them. As other panelists have mentioned, food security underpins security in general. Food secure people and communities are able to develop and grow and contribute to the global economy. And countries reap the benefits of having a healthy, happy, and stable population free from hunger and malnutrition. Food insecurity and hunger, on the other hand, can fuel economic and social instability. And this, in turn, increases drivers of migration, conflict, and the appeal of extremism. By supporting food security and food systems development abroad and at home, we can help counter these threats and build strong economic partners, increasing global prosperity and our own domestic economic security as well. The context in which we have to do this is changing daily. As a government, we are moving away from our historic focus on food security as solely combating hunger and focusing more holistically on food systems. A broader approach that considers many factors driving diets and economic decisions along the food value chain. Personally, my office feels it's very key to make sure good nutrition and healthy diets at the consumer level are a cornerstone of our approach 
and a cornerstone of our partners' approaches as well. This week marks a decade of the US government's food security and nutrition initiative, which as I mentioned, and you may know as Feed the Future. This advocates for and supports our partner countries' agriculture-led development through a whole value chain approach, sustainably building food security and nutrition. And as we move forward into the next decade of Feed the Future, we will look to bring in all of these aspects that people have mentioned and increased resilience to crises. We have led the charge in feeding people and responding to crises. And as Dr. Perlberg mentioned, US funding accounts for nearly half of the annual budget of the World Food Program, which by some measures is the largest humanitarian organization in the world. We also lead strong domestic responses to crises and show up through programs like Food for Peace and Food for Progress where there's urgent need. And while this need for immediate assistance is unfortunately growing, we know that the only way to reverse this trend is to invest in long-term solutions. We're going to need to adapt to increased climate shocks, new crises like COVID-19, and a new context of a highly urbanized and connected world where these shocks and crises can move quickly and appear in unexpected manifestations as we've all seen with COVID-19. Innovative solutions to food insecurity, such as mobile money for access to banking, flexible distribution of agricultural supplies and food aid, and remote sensing for improved weather and crop monitoring as well as real-time market information and communication for farmers are key to these new food environments and their many challenges, which include simultaneous obesity, the global spread of price shocks, diseases and infestations. And in response, we are working hard to make sure the whole US government and our partners are on the same page, working in lockstep to address these issues both at home and through mechanisms like scaling up nutrition and the Committee on World Food Security. We have everything to gain by leaning in in this international space for the good of our own country and for the world. This is a unique area for collaboration as every government must address food security and nutrition for its population, developing and developed countries alike. And there's bilateral and bicameral support for these issues in Congress. We have a longstanding reputation as leaders in combating hunger and the goodwill and cooperation this reputation generates should not be underestimated and should continue to drive our foreign policy engagement going forward. Thank you. Abigail, thanks very much. Uh, we are now to Q&A. Uh, if you're the moderator, this is when the going gets good here. So if you're uh, in the audience today and you have a burning question for our panelists, please put them in the chat box. But I get to start today. Uh, and because everybody talked about COVID, uh, one of the questions we had uh, come in um, was about that. So I'd like to ask all of our panelists today about this. And I think we'll start with Asma. Uh, 
in the face of the COVID-19 pandemic, is now the time for ambitious multilateral cooperation? You have 20 seconds to answer. Absolutely. There is no better time. This is a global crisis and it's really affecting people in every corner of the world and it's got government's attention. We, it, it's going to take a lot to get us there, but, but we have to start that conversation. It's revealed so much about the vulnerabilities that have had ripple effects across the world. Um, now is the time to think about how, how do we make sure that our food systems are resilient? How do we make sure, because they're affecting people in developed countries and developing countries, how do we make sure that we are reaching the most vulnerable? We, we know that, that poor nutrition makes you more vulnerable to these kinds of illnesses and, and viruses. So there is a lot that we can learn from this crisis and, and start to address. And that's more than 20 seconds. Sorry about that. No, that's good. Caitlin, same question. Over to you. Thanks. Um, drawing on my, my experience in the G7 and G20, I'll say that yes, now is the time to engage multilaterally, but I think that all the time is the time to engage multilaterally, but especially in the face of a global crisis, the answer is yes. Two points. When we engage multilaterally, I think it's important to move beyond our traditional focus on, on increasing the production of food. Again, uh, producing more food globally or in the United States doesn't lead to better food security. This crisis is happening. It's unfolding with record levels of food insecurity around the world and in the United States. While in the background, we have healthy levels of production. There have been supply, some supply shocks, but in general, healthy, healthy levels of, of food production. So it's important to extend our, our emphasis beyond the, beyond the farm level. Um, second point is to really uh, take another look at, at uh, nutrition and healthy diets, especially given the link between malnutrition and morbidity and, morbid and, and mortality from COVID. Thank you. Dr. Parlberg, same question over to you. Yes, engage multilaterally. Uh, unlike uh, the policies of the Trump administration toward the World Health Organization, for example, but we shouldn't expect the World Health Organization to produce a single model policy for all of the countries around the world. Uh, we know that uh, economic shutdowns can be the best practice in prosperous countries with adequate safety net programs in place for the unemployed. Uh, but if you impose a shutdown policy in a country that doesn't have an adequate safety net uh, program, people will be thrown into deep poverty and hunger. You can't do it the same way all around the world. Thank you. Abigail, I'm going to toss you a similar question with a twist, uh, given your, your uh, current role. Um, are U.S. policies adopting and changing in response to COVID-19 on this set of issues? And if so, how? Yes, I'd say absolutely. Um, we, you know, like everybody, have had to adjust to this new reality. Both our programs in the field and our policies in DC have had to adjust, whether that's finding new methods of assistance distribution or channeling funding towards specific food security and nutrition needs that the pandemic response has revealed. I will say we are doing this in close cooperation with both other donor and development partner governments to make sure that our responses to the pandemic complement each other's efforts and no effort is wasted, especially in spaces that we already have a strong cooperative relationship in. 
Thank you. Uh, I think we have time for probably two more questions and I have two teed up here from the audience. Um, one I'm gonna toss over to Asma. I think this fits best with the Bread for the World Institute uh, and what you all lead. Uh, what are the best ways to hold political leaders accountable? Uh, and there's a Minnesota specific twist. Uh, what should the audience uh, specific here to the great citizens of Minnesota or just the upper Midwest be doing right now specifically on these issues? Well, we're at an important uh, political moment in our country. We have an election coming up. It's really important that, um, that uh, constituents raise up this issue of hunger as they are um, engaging the candidates. Where do their candidates stand on these issues? How are they thinking about solving these issues? And really take that into consideration as you, as you make your decisions um, in terms of you know, uh, the election. And then it's really important to follow up and, and really get to, get to know them, stay persistent, keep engaging them. Um, as we, th you know, hunger is, we've, we have a broader understanding of hunger now. And in this country, it's become so clear that poor diets are um, really contributing to the higher death rates, especially in communities of color. These are the kinds of issues that we need to be engaging our members of Congress on and really um, and pushing for change. Excellent. Uh, I am just looking at the questions coming in over text and I'm checking out the chat bot here too. Uh, I'm going to squeeze in. I know two more, but I am going to squeak in two more. Um, we've got uh, some really good um, Minnesota uh, specific questions. Um, I'll tee this one up for Dr. Perlberg. Uh, food security also includes safe food and healthy soil. Uh, what, the question is, what will you do to support disappearing small farmers? But for you, Dr. Perlberg, let's tee it up with um, what should um, the NGO community and the U.S. government do to support the disappearing uh, middle and small farmers? Big question. Again, another podcast episode for Mark Ritchie. If you look, if you look at the, the structure of, of U.S. agriculture, uh, small farmers are not disappearing. Um, small farmers are, are still there. They're just making most of their income off the farm, or they're living off of retirement income, or they're living off of a spouse's income, or they're renting their land. It's a it's a different model of being a, a small farmer on the land. It's, uh, it's a lifestyle choice. Uh, and it's one, fortunately, that keeps large numbers of Americans who grew up on farms living um, on the family land, uh, in the family homestead. They're not full-time commercial farmers anymore, but they're still farmers by the USDA definition they're still very important parts of, of the rural community. It's of course the center of the farm structure that's been uh, hollowed out as the full-time commercial farmers have, have become larger and more specialized. 
All right, thank you. Okay, so last question, and this is going to be for everybody. So give me your um, biggest success and biggest failure. Uh, what do you see, or what do you think has been the greatest success and greatest failure in global food security in the last 50 years? Uh, that's pretty heady. Uh, and Caitlin, uh, I'm gonna toss it to you to, to, to start it off. And Dr. Prolberg, okay. we'll have you back clean up. <laughs> um, huge question, massive <laughs> question, minimal time to prepare. Um, I, I'll, I'll, I'll give one answer and I'll, I'll talk about both sides of the same coin. Um, one is probably the Green Revolution, and, uh, which was led by the United States and um, helped ward off famine in South Asia, um, parts of uh, Central America, Mexico. I think that's, that's to me, the greatest success over the past, whatever, 50 years. <laughs> um, what uh, I think a failure in the global community um, is, is our lack of ability to adapt and to craft new responses to new challenges. So we continue to follow a model um, in which we think that producing more food will, again, I keep saying this, lead to more food security, ignoring the other aspects many other aspects of food systems and the importance of healthy diets. Um, Norman Borlaug, the father of the Green Revolution said, if you wanna feed Africa, build roads. Well, it's time for us to build roads and invest in many other aspects across food systems. Yes, good, uh, Caitlin, a great plug. Uh, it's about the infrastructure. And I would say here in the United States, the infrastructure and also uh, the importance of broadband for all mm -hmm. communities. Uh, when the internet is more important than the road in front of your house, uh, it, it's, it's time to build it. Uh, also make a plug since we're here in Minnesota virtually today, uh, Dr. Borlaug, of course, uh, went to the University of Minnesota mm -hmm. and his family farm uh, actually is 13 miles from my family farm. Oh, I didn't know. Uh, right across the border in Iowa. So Abigail, same question over to you. Biggest success and biggest failure. It's tough given your current role, I know. Wow, yes, and over the last 50 years as well. Um, <laughs> be hard-pressed to do this over the last five. But I'd say, start with our greatest failure, is I'd say that the world tends to pay the most attention to food security and malnutrition during crises instead of doing the necessary work on resilience beforehand and you know, heading off these challenges before they exist because we often can see issues like this coming a little further out than maybe we'd like to admit. We do have small wins reversing this trend where longstanding programs like Feed the Future or other initiatives are making progress. I think though, our greatest success is really just leaning in in every space, and this is not just the government, but across the board, you really see people increasing development, knowledge, and innovation in nutrition and food security areas, and looking at all the new tools that we get as the world digitizes and gets more connected to address this rise of um, food insecurity from you know, the bottom up and the top down, and the involvement of a lot of people in caring about food and food systems, whether that's somebody, you know, making a grocery decision or, you know, famous chefs leaning in and starting, um, you know, hunger initiatives. So I'd say, I'd say maybe we're hopefully 
going to pay attention a little longer this time. Okay, 20 seconds. Asma, over to you. I'd say the, the biggest failure is um, not think putting people and, and health at the center of decision-making around agriculture and food security. And I think the, the greatest success, and just flip it on its head, is that we're beginning to do that. And SDG 2 really does bring these things together. And uh, hopefully we're on a, we take the, heed the lessons um, of the COVID crisis and, and uh, the, the, the data that is, um, is uh, really pointing to the need to, to bring agriculture and nutrition more in alignment. Excellent answer. Dr. Paulberg, 30 seconds to tie it up. Biggest success, I mentioned already, China's 1978 decision to reform its land and marketing policies. Within two decades, that change had lifted 250 million people out of poverty and out of hunger. Biggest failure, the failure of the governments in Africa that promised in 2003 to be spending 10% of their national budget on agricultural development by 2008. Only a half a dozen out of more than 40 uh, met that goal, and they still haven't. Excellent. So Mark Ritchie, back over to you. I think this looks like we need to go deep and have these panelists back to do one-on-ones with us here in Minnesota. And that podcast idea and all of that, you're on it. But I think this whole panel and the whole day, thank you to all of you. But it was a reminder that we've been isolated on some levels, but things have been developing. Now we need to be engaging. And I want to uh, make a special invitation to all of you and to everyone watching. We're going to do World Food Day like the old-fashioned way. Those of you who remember the teleconferences that came from the satellites down, Zoom makes it easy. And so a month from today on World Food Day, we're going to start with the World Food Program, talk to the ILO, talk to FAO, talk to the people doing regenerative, talk to the companies, it's going to be a day of beginning to dig in deeper with those new possibilities. So please check out the website at uh, Global Minnesota. I might be getting up and making the argument that PEPFAR is our greatest accomplishment in food security over the last 50 years, but we'll come back to that later. I want to thank our partners again. I want to remind people September 18th, this Friday morning, 9.30, we're looking at the new developments with the new NAFTA sponsored with the Consulate of Mexico the Consulate of Canada and our U.S. Commerce Commercial Service. Don't miss that. And also, um, again, check out that website, uh, www.globalminnesota.org. Check out World Food Day. Lots of things coming up on the SDGs and other things as well. Thank you, all of you, for your life of work and service to the people of the planet, to the people of the nation, to your family and to your friends. It's a pleasure and honor to be here with you today, and I'm looking forward to all the next times we get to enjoy doing this again together. Thank you again. Goodbye now. Goodbye, audience. Thanks for being with us today.